Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash spookshow. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Tonight I will kill all of God, Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Beware the moon, David. Go now. Heaven help you. This is the All-American Spook Show, bringing you the Summer of the Wolf. Hello and welcome to another edition of the All-American Spook Show Horror Podcast. As always, I'm Josh and I'm joined here with Donnie, hey, Will, hey, hey. and the Professor Smoke. Yep. And we are here to continue the Summer of the Wolf series with The Howling from 1981. So it's another selection from the year 1981, which at least, what, three uh, huge werewolf releases came out that year with an American Werewolf in London, this one, and Wolfen. And I think even we dived into that a little deeper in our History of Werewolves episodes. Um, there was uh, at least one or two more that came out this year. So it was it was a big year 40 years ago for uh, werewolf movies. And then, uh, like I said, as we went in deeper into the History of Werewolf movies, it just kind of took a little bit of a dive after that, you know, as far as these things being taken seriously. Although you could argue like an American werewolf in London has a, a fair amount of comedy to it. And even this one intentionally or otherwise has some comedy elements to it. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> when Joe Dante, it probably was intentional. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know some of it was definitely intentional, but uh, some of it, I don't think was intentional. You know, that you watch it 40 years later and you're just laughing it, at some aspects you shouldn't be laughing at, I guess, but, um, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, you know, I, this was, for me, this wasn't the first time I watched it. So like, I, it's just been a long time since I sat down and watched this from like beginning to end. Yeah. So some of it kind of caught me off guard, you know, <laughs> but, um, we'll get into that here in a little bit, but before we di- start diving deep into it, I'll remind you of all the, uh, you know, the other things we do and the ways to uh, check us out in other platforms and stuff. If you want to email us any comments or uh you know uh, suggestions or questions or anything like that you can do that at all american spook show at gmail.com you can find us on twitter at aa spook show of course we're on instagram and facebook and the slasher app and uh youtube and t public we're, we're on all those things you should be able to easily find us on uh by searching for all american spook show we also have like a link tree which we put down in the show notes there that pretty much gives all the links to all this stuff and much more all the various ways to get the podcast and all the other things we do. Of course, uh, every Thursday on YouTube, it's called Deadline Horror News. It's basically exactly what it is. It, we just kind of go over the the uh, current events in the horror scene and everything, kind of uh, every week, you know, update you on what's going on and what's coming out and stuff like that. And over on Patreon, if you uh, subscribe to us there at patreon.com slash Show, you'll be able to... Um, get our video minisodes that come out every Tuesday. And the main attraction there is uh, the library of the professor, where the professor smoke takes a curated selection from his vast library of horror related things back there. And, you know, even not even horror things, just uh, smoke's got a little bit of everything back there, but he picks something from there and kind of talks about it and gives his ratings and thoughts. And we, and we talk about that for a few minutes. So that's on patreon.com slash AA spook show. 
um, if you subscribe or become a patron at, I believe it's the $3 level up, uh, you get those videos every Tuesday guaranteed. So we've got that all the other ways. I mean, you, you know, we're, we're all over the socials and everything. So um, no excuse not to immerse yourself into the world of the spook show. So <laughs> plenty of options there. But yeah, what, we're, what we've came here to talk about today, like I said, is the howling from 1981. So I'll go ahead and toss to the trailer for that. We've got to warn people. What do you see? The howling. Somewhere in this city. In this human jungle. It begins. What do you see? What's there? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place, lies an experience too terrifying for words. And now, all anyone can do is watch and wait. Night, I'm gonna And there's the trailer for The Howling from 1981. So, Donnie, I guess I'll start with you. What were your initial reactions upon, like, watching this? I guess maybe your history of it, if this wasn't the first time, and, you know, what were your uh, reactions watching it this time around? Well, I had I had seen it, uh, gosh, I want to say maybe a couple. The first time was on VHS, I want to say, in the uh, probably the early 90s uh, when I first watched it. But, yeah, I've seen it a couple of times this was the actually the first time in many many years uh since i watched it from beginning to end but you know as far as i mean i i think i liked it more this time than i did in previous times hmm. um i don't want to get into you know specifics but uh which yeah. we'll get we'll get into all that later but i i think from start to finish i liked it better this time will what about you just the f first time you saw this yeah uh first time i've seen it i was i thought it was a decent flick i mean it's definitely you know aged and you know so, some parts were kind of laughable but I, I think there was plenty of stuff to kind of you know sink your teeth into so you know like overall i think it was fine i think it was a fine movie sink your teeth into huh yeah but mm -hmm. a <laughs> little summer of the wolf humor being thrown out there <laughs> professor what about you what's your uh what's your history with it and uh your reactions and your feeling about it this is one of those where i can't remember the first time it's been way back but i can't remember if it was 
video, uh, HBO or whatever movie channel or whatever. You know, but I've seen it so many times over the years, so just can't trace that person back. But it, I like, I like it every time I watch it. So it's, uh, it's up there for me. As far as werewolf movies and '80s flicks go, you know, we had, we had just recently done American Werewolf in London. So as we progress through this, you know, my assessment on kind of on the two, since these are the two, these are basically the two movies that kicked off the whole. Uh, werewolf genre from the 80s onwards. And both these movies, honestly, were kind of the start of the inspiration for us to even do this Summer of the Wolf series, honestly, you know, when we started yes. planning it and talking about it because this was the 40th anniversary this year, you know, of these two movies, and you start connecting the dots, like, wait a minute, there's like, you know, three or four movies that came out there. It was a big, it was a big deal that year. So, like, well, it's 40 years later. Let's, you know, kind of celebrate it by, you know, doing this Summer of the Wolf series. So we've done some classics and some other ones, and we're not quite done yet, but... You get the point. This is kind of where the the genesis of the whole concept of this came from was from that. So, uh, yeah, for myself, uh, I've I've I watched this movie. I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of like Donnie. I've seen it probably more than once, but it's been a long time since I watched it from beginning to end like this. So some of it was kind of fresh, you know, watching it with a, a, a you know a set of eyes now versus like when I saw it. Man, it had to have been 25, 30 years ago. The last time I probably sat down and watched this whole thing, uh, it's been a long time, probably since the early to mid '90s. I think you know a lot of it holds up well enough, and it's an enjoyable flick. So yeah, that that's our initial uh, uh, assessment of the situation. So I guess we'll go ahead and uh, get into the background and stuff. Another title of this movie that I found, I thought this was kind of funny to point out, or maybe not funny, but just you know, it's a different title in Australia because for the most part, I think it translated to pretty much the same thing everywhere else. But in Australia, there was an alternative title for some reason. It was called The Howling the Beasts. So maybe like, maybe like the howling wasn't enough to like explain what the hell people were going to see. So they added in The Beasts in Australia for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, maybe there was another famous movie called The Howling out there. Who knows? Maybe, maybe there was something before that and uh, they just wanted to distinguish, distinguish the difference. Who knows? The Beast that, you know, that's out there that's uh, sort of a erotic version of Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> what? <laughs> next up on the uh spook show yeah that'll be our special patreon uh show <laughs> spook spook show after dark yeah the all-american so, peep show <laughs> so, so this movie it was about five minutes long right yeah and and that was two more than i needed um this movie was released in france january 21st of 1981 it actually played like at a film festival or something there and then uh, it was about two months later, it was released in New York City, March 13th of 1981. And then it got like a wide United States release about a month later, April 10th, 1981. Uh, and it was produced by International Film Investors, which that's a, a name on the up and up, right? And uh, Westcom Pictures. Who hasn't heard of them? Yeah. Big deal, International Film Investors. <laughs> and Westcom Pictures. And then it was distributed, of course, by Embassy Pictures. Uh, of course, this movie is rated R and has a total runtime of one hour and 31 minutes. So that's usually right where you want it to be. And this yeah. movie is, it's basically, I guess you, it's based on a novel by Gary Brandoner. But, like, I think the the novel, like, this veer is completely different from what the novel, from what I can gather. I have not read that book. Um, but from what I can gather, yeah, like, this is nothing, almost nothing near what the book is as far as the story is concerned because they changed a lot. Well, and while we're talking about the book, I, I haven't read the book, but I do know that Howling 4, the original Nightmare, 
was also based on the book and actually is <laughs> more accurate to the book than this one. Now it's a shittier movie than this one, but it is more accurate to the book. <laughs> so there's Excuse that. me, sir. I'd like to make a movie off of your book. I like the name. I like the concept. That's it. Yeah. Here's your money. <laughs> Leave us alone. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll quickly point out some of the differences that I found as far as like from the movie to the novel. In the novel, Karen White is called Karen Beatty and her husband in the book is called Roy Beatty as opposed to Bill Neal in the film. And also neither Karen or Roy work in television in, in the book. Karen is raped by a man in her apartment and in the movie she's saved by the police, you know, right before the werewolf attacks. Also, Karen's psychiatrist is only briefly mentioned in the film, her psychiatrist is Dr. Wagner, who, you know, is, ends up being a major character. In the novel, Karen goes to recuperate at Drago, a mountain village in California. In the film, she goes to The Colony, a health resort run by Dr. Wagner. Her rapist in the novel is named Max Quist, and he is an ex-con who has no involvement with the village of Drago or its inhabitants. In the movie, her attempted attacker is named Eddie Quist and is already affiliated with The Colony before he meets Karen. Marsha Quist's name in the novel is Marsha Lura, a shopkeeper in Drago, and she is not a relative of Max Quist. Also, Karen and Roy bring their pet dog Lady with them to the village, which is killed later on in the film They Have No Dog. The werewolves in the novel are described as resembling actual wolves, and the werewolves of the movie are more anthropomorphic. Easy for me to say. Anthropomorphic. <laughs> and can walk on their hind legs, standing over seven feet tall. Also, the werewolves in the novel are never seen in the daytime. In fact, they change every night once the sun has gone down. The werewolves in the, in the film can change at will at any time of the day or night and are seen in daylight hours. In the novel, the character Chris Halloran is Roy's best friend. In the film, Chris works with Karen and Bill at the TV station. Karen's friend Terry, Chris's girlfriend, also works in the station, is not featured in the novel at all. And finally, in the novel, Karen escapes from Drago physically unharmed, but mentally traumatized and survives after being rescued by Chris Halloran. In the film, she gets bitten by her husband, Bill, who became a werewolf and later transforms into one herself on live TV, you know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, there's a lot of major differences there that I just pointed out, you know, between the two, but you can see kind of arriving to the same point, just going different uh, ways to get there. So the budget for this movie was one and a half million dollars, which I, that's pretty impressive, even for back in those days. I mean, like, they stretched that money, man. Like, they got their money's uh, worth out of a million and a half. For the effects work and for the location they shot at and everything. I mean, yeah, definitely looks like a movie that was shot for more than a million, a million and a half. Yeah, no doubt. For the worldwide gross, it made $17.9 So, you know, not gangbusters, but successful enough. And obviously successful enough for there to be, what, seven more, <laughs> eight more of these movies uh, after that? Um, which I guess I'll go ahead and run down the list real quick since we're on it. There was this one, in The Howling, in 1981, directed by Joe Dante, which we'll go into here, you know, his career and everything here in just a second. Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, was released in 1985. By, that was directed by Philippe Mora. And uh, the director on the third one was same, same Philippe Mora. Howling 3, The Marsupials, in 1987. Then the next year, 1988, Howling 4, The Original Nightmare, directed by John Huff. Howling 5, The Rebirth, in 1989, directed by Neil Sundstrom. Howling 6, The Freaks, in 1991, directed by Hope Perello. Uh, we're just going to jump to that one because that sounds awesome. The Howling, New Moon Rising, in 1995, was directed by Clive Turner. And then finally, The Howling Reborn, in 2011, was directed by Joe Nemzicki. And uh, I think when we were kind of going through the Howling franchise on the... Uh, 
um, History of Werewolves episode, we mentioned that uh, there has been talk of another, I guess, a, basically a remake, reboot, however you want to phrase it. As recently as like January of 2020, it was announced that Andy Muschietti would direct the remake for Netflix. So I, I don't know if that's still going to happen or not. Like I'm not seeing anything like recent about it, but as of 2020, there was talk of this, you know, happening. So I guess we'll see. I guess, uh, Smoke, uh, how, how many of these have you seen, like, throughout this franchise? Like, I, I think I've only, I know, obviously, I've seen this one, and we just watched it now, but, like, it seems like I remember watching two and three, and that's about it for me. Yeah, I've seen two and three, and I saw part of uh, the one I mentioned earlier, part four, which was uh, a new night, or was it the original Nightmare? Mm-hmm. Uh, the one I mentioned was kind of more accurately based on the novel, yeah. but uh, I, didn't, I don't think I ever finished that one, and I didn't go beyond that, so uh, there's what part five which i don't remember what the subtitle part five was the, right the, now. the rebirth the rebirth and then was there there was a six right yeah howling six the freaks yeah and, and yeah that's right i remember there was one about freaks i never saw that one but i remember seeing i guess pictures from the set or whatever in like Pangoria back then and then what was the, then there was another one that was a there's a more recent one from 2011 i think yeah the howling so, yeah, reborn all all the way through was part three <laughs> and i saw part four partially yeah and that, I never bothered beyond that. The Howling Reborn <laughs> that came out in 2011, the poster says, Full Moon, New Blood. And it, and the poster is kind of reminiscent to the poster of this one, you know, the original Howling. It's not nearly as good as this one, you know, like the the uh, claw ripping, th- or the nails yeah. ripping through the, the paper, or whatever the hell that is. It's not quite as, it's not as good as that, but it's very, it's very similar to that. Because some of the other posters for these movies are horrible. Just, <laughs> just, yeah. just bad. <clears throat> that one for the Howling New I Moon mean, Rising, that's that's bad. And part two and part three were definitely no great shakes at all. But, I mean, they were, <laughs> at that point, when I started watching part four and it was worse than part three to me, <laughs> like, okay, I was like, I give up with it. And I heard part five was even not even as good as part four. So, I mean, they just, that gradual shift down. Well, it wasn't really a gradual. Part two pretty much dropped the bar pretty far <laughs> for the first one. As it kind of happened, especially back then, they they started making so many sequels that, like, you know, the quality and, and, and everything would, go, you know, slowly go down each one. I mean, just from the first one to the sixth one, that was t- only 10 years for six movies. So, like, yeah, and, you know, I'm sure the budgets went down and down and down and, you know, every time. Yeah, yeah, like, in the more recent times, it's remakes, but back then it was sequels. Everybody was wanting to put out sequels. So they were money makers, even though they not nearly as good as the original in most cases, but they would make money at the box office, at yeah. least enough to make, you know, a profit. And I'm sure by the time the late '80s roll around and into the early '90s, now they're making movie on uh, money on home video, you know. So that's yeah. another reason to keep, you know. And they could probably make them cheaper too, like making making them for video. Yep. But yeah, because yeah. that's what I think. Pretty sure that's what part four was. I don't think I know part two and part three may have gotten some sort of limited theatrical releases back then, but I'm pretty sure that part four and five by that time was being made straight to you know for the video market. So yeah, like there were in total eight movies. You know, including the original, eight of these. I'm sure whenever we do another Summer of the Wolf or, you know, we feel like plugging another one of these in, we'll get to the rest of this series slowly but surely over time. But Which I think will be another interesting series to check out for sure. I'm sure it will make for some fun episodes is the point. So. <laughs> yeah, that'll be, that will be because part two and part three alone are entertaining. I mean, they're pretty shitty, but they're entertaining. Yeah. And then by the time we get to five and six, that'll be new to all of us. Like none of us would have seen those, you know. And I'm sure by the time we get down there, we're like, God, why are we doing this? <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so the movie was directed by Joe Dante. 
which, uh, you know, I, I would imagine like the first, the first thing that would probably pop into most people's heads for Joe, from Joe Dante would be Gremlins in 1984, which was about three years after this. And this yeah. would, and from what I can tell, this movie is basically the reason he got Gremlins. Like the, oh, yep. the, the powers that be saw this, you know, and saw the good uh, work that they did with the uh, special effects and everything else that uh, they did here, that that basically got them to gig, you know, to make Gremlins for Steven Spielberg. So, um, and, and, and Howard to be, I think happened to be Steven Spielberg, but I think he's the one that sent the script to Joe Dante specifically <laughs> based on the howling. Cause I know Spielberg took D Wallace from the howling to do, to be an ET directly just based on our performance in the house. So Joe, Joe Dante, his first movie, uh, at least as far as on IMDb, it's a, it's a movie called the movie orgy. <laughs> it's a documentary apparently, I guess it's like kind of like a compilation movie um, that includes clips from TV programs and B movies of the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting title, <laughs> the movie orgy. But after that, his his uh, first that was in 1968. He didn't direct like another you know uh, I guess full length feature or whatever until 1976. He made Hollywood Boulevard. Then in 1978, he made Piranha, which. I'm sure this is another inspiration, you know, part of the inspiration in the process for The Howling. Then in 1979, uh, he had an uncredited role in, or, you know, uh, directing role in Rock and Roll High School. And then right after that in 1981 is when they made The Howling. But after that, obviously, I mean, he directed one of the segments in Twilight Zone, the movie. The one is called It's a Good Life. He directed Gremlins, uh, an episode of the uh, 80s version of The Twilight Zone couple episodes of Amazing Stories, you know, another one of those uh, shows from the 80s. He directed the movie Inner Space, which, you know, I'm sure we all enjoyed that one back in the day. Yeah. That was in 1987. Uh, another favorite, he directed The Burbs, which I've, I think we've had a couple of Burbs connections, you know, in, in past episodes, too. Donnie, that'd be something uh, that you might need to dig around in, in your, uh, into the archives for there. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I think... Uh, Cinema Nine podcast covered the Burbs. Um, I want to say a few weeks ago, uh-huh. uh, but as far as the Burbs, I'd have to look into. I don't. I don't think we. I don't know. I, I, I'll I have to look into. I it. think there are some loose connections of some other stuff. I mean, nothing major, yeah. but it seems like we've mentioned it before when going through yeah. other things. Of course, he also directed Gremlins Two, the new batch. You know the. You know, I guess it's it's probably more fun to go back and watch now. I remember back then kind of being disappointed by it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm sure it's probably a little more fun, you know, maybe 30 years later to, you know, to watch that one. But it's been a long time since I saw that. Uh, he directed that John Goodman flick matinee in 1993. One of Will's favorites, that animated movie Small Soldiers in 1998. Yes. <laughs> and another <laughs> one of your favorites, Looney Tunes Back in Action in 2003. <laughs> How do you go from doing... Uh, Small Soldiers and Looney Tunes back in action to then directing two episodes of Masters of Horror. <laughs> but Joe Dante did it. And I guess you could basically say he's still, you know, active these days. I mean, although it's not nearly as active as he once was, but he actually directed uh, like 10 episodes of Hawaii Five-0, you know, the, the, the remake of that that was on CBS for years there, like in the, you know, in the 2010s. He directed a segment in a movie called Nightmare Cinema. And there's two movies in pre-production for him. The Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes and Labyrinthus. Those are in pre-production. So, you know, I guess we haven't seen the last of Joe Dante, but, like, you know, obviously he hasn't been nearly as active over the last, you know, handful of years or so. But 
Uh, I didn't see exactly how old he was, but he's got to be getting up there, man. I mean, he's been active for a long time. Yeah, he was born in 1946, so that's uh, – I'm not good at the math, but uh, that's that's getting up there. So Seventy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. I don't know. Sounds right. Yeah, I'm not good at the – He's not good at – not good at the math or the words. Can't, can't say. Yeah, 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 neither. None of those things. <laughs> the writing credits, obviously, this is based on the novel by Gary Brander, which we mentioned. The screenplay was by John Sales and Terrence H. Winkless, which I think, like, they, they actually went through a couple of different writers when they were producing this because there was another director for this. The original director for this was Jack Conrad. He left with, he, you know, there was some difficulties with the studio or whatever. He left, and then, you know, that's how eventually... They got Joe Dante, you know, he was hired. And Terrence H. Winkless, that's what it was. He he wrote the original draft. Joe Dante came on and then hired John Sales to completely rewrite the script because apparently they had worked together, uh, Dante and Sales had worked together on Piranha. So he got him to come in and completely rewrite the script. And uh, I guess that's kind of where they kind of wrote in a little bit more of the the, the comedy and the, the satire and stuff that was in this movie. But Winkless still got a co-writer's credit, I guess, because, you know, he probably wrote the bulk of it. And then they just kind of came in and, you know, switched things up. So they, he still got a credit for it. Uh, the cast. Well, I guess before we get into the cast, we should probably mention who did the special effects on this. And uh, I guess I'll probably leave that more in... Uh, your court there, Smoke, because you probably know a little bit more about him off the surface is Rob Botton. Yeah, and I guess this is probably a good time, even though we mentioned it in the American Werewolf episode, that uh, it was supposed to be Rick Baker who, did, who was going to do the effects for this movie, and then he got the deal to do, I guess, from John Landis, offer, gave him the offer to do American Werewolf in London, and so he just he just skedaddled, just left uh, the howling, and went to do American Werewolf in London, but Rob Bottin was supposed to be his he was going to be his assistant effects guy anyway, so he was already attached to it. And, I mean, I guess he already had the know-how. So he just moved up into the head special effects makeup department. And uh, I think he did, did a great job on it. Both movies were, like, got acclaim for their special effects. It's just that I know American Werewolf won, won an award for it. but uh, Yeah, well, Rick but, Baker got an Oscar for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he beat him out for it. I guess, so, I guess Rick Baker did his, you know, now, if Rick Baker stayed on this one, would he have gotten an Oscar for it? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, but whatever happened, the powers that be ended up, you know, they ended up going where they went. He went to do American Werewolf in London, won the Oscar, and then Bravo team went to Howling, and he did just as well. I think he did a great job with the effects on the movie and won a lot of acclaim and got a lot more jobs after this movie. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, just, but, uh, on, yeah. just on the surface uh, for him, like, he is also known for uh, just being in the makeup department for RoboCop, Total Recall, uh, Seven, you know, the uh, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman movie, uh, The Thing in 1982. So, yeah, he, he's made a nice little career for himself as well, you know. <laughs> he's worked on a lot of great stuff. I don't think he's as active anymore, at least. Like, as, uh, as far as on IMDb, his last uh, credit was uh, an episode of Game of Thrones back in 2014. But before that, he had worked on, uh, randomly, the uh, Adam Sandler movie, Mr. Deeds. And then before that, Charlie's Angels. Also, uh, Will, you'd be interested to know, he worked on Fight Club. Ooh, yeah. One of your favorites, for sure. And uh, n- not a joke this time, that's an actual one of his favorites. So, uh, no, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> actually one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll claim that one this time, not Looney Tunes. But he... Anybody who listens to the show is going to think that Will watches the most like retarded movies. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> the most eclectic mix of weird. Like, man, this guy loves Looney Tunes and Fight Club? What the hell's wrong with this guy? 
<laughs> but yeah, he's had a hell of a career. <laughs> I can't even remember him off the top of my head, but there's been quite a few other ridiculous titles he's assigned, uh, assigned to Will, I think, yeah. over the course of these episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember any of them. But, yeah. I'm sure all the Emmanuel movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Emmanuel yeah. 7 through 42. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, like, this literally, his career goes all the way back to, uh, he had uncredited makeup uh, work on King Kong from 1976. He worked on Star Wars, Episode Four: A New Hope, you know, the real Star Wars, that the, the original Star Wars movie. Um, the, yeah, but in particular, the cantina sequence, he did all those creatures in there. See, there you go. Um, the, the Incredible Melting Man, like, pretty much at the same time. The Fury in 1978, Piranha. Uh, another connection there to Joe Dante, Mistress of the Apes. That's one of Donnie's favorites. Uh, the The Fog. So I mean, this dude's worked with John Carpenter, Joe Dante, George Lucas. I mean, like <laughs> uh, uh, a little bit of everybody. Man, it's it's insane. Um, even uh, all the way down to uh, working with uh, David Fincher and Seven. And uh, I'm blanking. Who was the director on Fight Club? I'm completely blanking on that. Wasn't that? Yeah, that was David Fincher as well. So yeah, like. This dude is clearly, you know, uh, one of the guys that was called upon for most of the 80s, 90s, and er, into the early 2000s. He was one of the guys you called to get in to, uh, to help out with your uh, the major films of the era. So I guess we'll go ahead and get into the cast. Uh, it stars D. Wallace as Karen White. Now, you know, once again, Donnie, the connection's here with D. Wallace. We've got a few yeah. of those, right? Yeah, I've got them. Okay. Yeah. Are you gonna mention those later, or do you want to mention them now? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just mention them later. Okay. All right. Yeah. There's plenty of them. Uh, she would most be known for. Remember, she played the mom in ET, uh, the mom in Cujo. <laughs> she wasn't a mom in this one, but she was the mom in Critters, which we've, which we did. Uh, what episode was that? That was a while back. Episode eleven. Okay. Oh, there, yeah. yeah. There. Oh, you what? Go. Yeah, I know it was a while back, but uh, yeah, she was in Critters. So we've we, and we've mentioned her in a few other movies for sure, which I'm you know Donnie will get into that, but. Needless to say, one of the, uh, I get, uh, Smoke, would you call her one of the squeam, scream, squeam, <laughs> would you call her a scream queen, or would you just say, like, she's just a favorite of the horror community? Yeah, I, don't, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, scream queens are pretty much, if you, anybody's acted in a multiple horror movies before, they're, they're pretty much considered a scream queen, so I guess you would put her in there, even though, you know, when you think of scream queens, you think of, like, Elvira or Linnea Quigley or whatever, but I think, I think it's safe to add her in there with, like, I was going to say Karen Black, and also I'll go into the names of some of these characters as we go into it, But and I didn't hear this anywhere. I haven't heard Joe Dante mention it. I haven't read it anywhere, but I'm assuming that her name in the movie, Karen White, is a play off of Karen Black, you know, famous, which is a famous horror screen queen. Yeah. <laughs> but, but all the other names of the characters in this movie, and like I said, I'll get into that a little later, are from our nods to character, or not, not or actually nods to real people, directors and whatnot that were pretty much directly tied to werewolf movies so I don't but know. I don't know about I don't know if she was in a werewolf movie or not I'm not, I just assumed that that was a playoff of her name I don't doubt character. that I don't doubt that at all because I saw some other ones that you may reference so I'll I'll leave it for when we get into that uh you know to see what right. you see what you know about that because I found something else that had a lot of I guess there was a lot of uh how would you phrase it easter eggs and kind of in jokes and stuff yeah. that he put into this oh yeah, yeah. you know this for, movie has got a ton of those and not all of them are easy to I'm sure I probably haven't even spotted all of them yeah, yeah. But, uh, I've got some that I found, Martin. so we'll, we'll go through that shortly. But, yeah, Dee Wallace, man, yeah. like, t we've talked about her before in past episodes, but she has 255 credits on IMDb. 
that date back to 1974. She was in an episode of the TV series Lucas Tanner, uh, which I fuck me, I've never heard of that. But her first feature film role was in The Stepford Wives in 1975. She played Nettie the Maid. Uh, but, she, you know, right after that, like literally two years later, she was in The Hills Have Eyes. And I would say it was kind of, you know, away we go there between TV series and, and movies and everything. I wouldn't, I guess that would kind of be one of her big breakout roles, you know, The Hills Have Eyes. She, like I said, she was in a handful of things throughout the late 70s and into the early 80s before she finally got to The Howling. So I guess between that and then, if, you know, uh, there was a movie called uh, The Movie 10 in 1979 tons of tv series all the major tv series of the day trapper trapper john md chips uh this one i never even fucking heard of mrs colombo I'm, I'm assuming that was a spinoff of colombo um barnaby jones all the major shows of the late 70s starsky and hutch she had an episode you know uh, starring or a, a cameo role however you want to phrase it in those episodes until 1981 the howling and then after that you know ton, et and then away we go right but uh, an impressive career, no no question about it, and she's still active today. Patrick McNee is Dor- uh, Dr. George Wagner. Uh, like, I, like we noted earlier, this is the guy that wasn't even in the book at all. He's another guy that, you know, is a recognizable face, uh, especially, you know, back... He has 175 credits on IMDb that date all the way back to 1938. He had an uncredited role in uh, Pygmalion. Is that how the hell you say that? So, sounds good. Pygmalion? Pig, Pygmalion? Pygmalion? Yeah, there you go. Sure. That sounds that sounds more right than what I said. Uh, that was an uncredited role. His other uncredited role right after that, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp <laughs> in 1943. But And uh, a bunch of early TV movies, too. It's crazy. Like You don't see a lot of uh, TV movie credits for stuff in the 40s. He would most notably be known for... His role in A View to a Kill, that was a, a James Bond, you know, 007 movie. This, uh, The Avengers, you know, that series in the 60s, not uh, Marvel's Avengers, but, you know, the original Avengers show from the 60s. And a movie called The Creature Wasn't Nice. <laughs> and that came out the same year as The Howling, 1981. Um, uh, just to kind of jump in, uh, George, uh, George Wagner, hmm. um, that's the uh, director of The Wolfman from 1941. So that's uh, just kind of like another little Easter egg there. There you go. So that's where they got the name. Yep. Yeah. So that's like, uh, exactly like as I mentioned, the one that, I, that the Universal movie that I first saw, I guess, is uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I'm pretty sure he, I think he directed that one too. That's more of a direct reference, you know, if you know if you know your stuff, right? Like that one will be like, oh hell, he's he's naming it after that guy, you know. But yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, he passed away in June of 2015 at the age of 93. So, very long, distinguished career for Patrick McNee. It stars Dennis Dugan as Chris. Um, <laughs> Chris was like the other guy that worked at the TV station with Karen. That was, I guess, kind of like the, I don't know exactly what he was. I guess he was kind of like the lead producer or something like that that was helping her out throughout the film. He's another familiar face, though. I mean, he's been in a, a ton of things. It's only 65 credits, but I'd say he's definitely a memorable face in a lot of those things that you've seen. And those date back to, by the way, 1971. He had an uncredited role in The Hospital. Uh, But he actually had his first credited role in 1972, the next year, called Night Call Nurses. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that is, but that straight up sounds like a porno. Just saying. Yeah. It sounds like one of Will's favorites. Yeah. (laughs) Once again, Looney Tunes and Night Call Nurses. And hardcore pornography. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Emmanuel 69. 
the afterbirth. Right. <laughs> Episodes of Mod Squad, Love American Style, The Waltons, you know, throughout the 70s, uh, the TV movie Death Race, handful of other movies and TV, TV series appearances, I mean, all through the 70s. I mean, he was extremely busy, like, through, say, 1975 to 1978. I mean, like, this dude was in every other television series and uh, roles in movies and stuff. Uh, and then, of course, The Howling in 1981 and tons of other stuff after that. He would most notably be known for his roles in Happy Gilmore, You Don't Mess With the Zohan, Big Daddy. <laughs> so clearly this dude's got, uh, there's some type of hookup with Adam Sandler there, right? There's no question about I don't know what the, the relationship there is, but like a lot of the stuff that this guy has done um, acting-wise over the last, you know, 20, 25 years have been Adam Sandler movies. Like, there was a whole run. Happy Gilmore, Big Daddy, uh, The Bench Warmers, I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, You Don't Mess With The Zohan, Grown Ups, Jack and Jill, Grown Ups 2. That's my boy. I think that's a, a Sandler production. Yeah, yeah, that was another Sandler. I think production. it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. Like, pretty much everything this guy's done over the last 20 years has been Adam Sandler stuff. So, maybe that's where I'm recognizing the face, you know, just from watching these random movies over the years. Christopher Stone plays the role of uh, William Bill Neal. He was her husband, right? Mm. Karen. Uh, Karen. Yeah, I think I, they were engaged at the time of this movie, at least I believe they were engaged, and then they got married sometime later in 81. Oh, uh, her and uh, D, uh, uh, him and D. Wallace in real life? D. Wallace, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow, in real life they were engaged in the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're talking about in the movie, yeah. But, yeah, in real life they were engaged at the time this movie was being made, and then I guess it was a good time to mention that, that, that uh, she had the role for this movie, and they were looking for somebody to play the uh, William Neal part. She, and so she, you know, had her fiance in mind for it, not just because it was her fiance, but because she thought he'd be good for the role. But he, she said, you know, yeah, I know this actor. Um, God, what was his name? Uh, Christopher Stone. <laughs> and I think he'd be great for this role. <laughs> and they gave her a number, and then they called him, and then he came in, and then I guess at some point later, I don't know how it happened. Something happened, and when I guess. Uh, Joe Dante or somebody had to con contact him. Somehow or other, they called her number, and he answered or something. Oh, and I was trying to call so-and-so. He goes, oh, no, this is him. And then, anyway, they found out that, <laughs> that it was her, that they were together. And then they're like, oh, God, this, this isn't going to work. You know, Joe Dante's like, this isn't going to work. We can't, you're going to be ganging up on the producer and director and all this. And they're like, no, 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 we'll be fine. And they just went with it, and it turned out that he was great for the role. Dude, is it just me or is this dude like a dead ringer for Tom Atkins? Like, I, at first yeah, yeah. I kind of thought it was him. And I'm like, well, no, nah, no, nah, that ain't him. But, uh, and then I looked into it. But, yeah, like, straight up, like, at first I was like, holy shit, they got Tom Atkins in this movie. I forgot about that. Oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were in another movie together, too. They were in Cujo together because she plays the guy that I think he, they, he was, she was cheating on her husband in that movie with, yeah. with uh, Christopher. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's most known for this, Cujo. The New Lassie, that was another one of uh, Donnie's favorites, I believe, this time. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was in the late 80s to early <laughs> 90s, The New Lassie. Uh, <laughs> and he was in a movie in 1982, so just a year later, called The Junk Man. He has 85 acting credits on IMDb that date back to 1968. He was in a uh episode of the series The Outcast. But basically, yeah, throughout the, the late 60s and into the 70s, tons of TV series appearances. Same kind of stuff. Mod Squad, 
uh, Mission Impossible, Love American Style, Wheeler and Murdoch. I've never heard of that. Just a number of <laughs> a number of series throughout the 70s, uh, all the way up until you know he eventually gets to Howling and and, and does other things. And like I I didn't even get the connection there. Uh, I didn't see that uh, that uh, he and D Wallace had been together. But um, Smoke, I just found another connection here that might interest you because it, this has come up before. He was in an episode of The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I bet you I love that. I haven't seen that show since back in the day because I haven't seen it on reruns anywhere. Yeah. But if, if anybody, if I could find it anywhere, I'd probably watch every episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched the hell out of it back in the day. The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. He was in an episode in 1980, so this is right before The Howling came out. He unfortunately passed away in October of 1995 at the age of 55, so he, he kind of died young, honestly. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was working basically right up until then, too. Like, he... There were things that came out in 1994. His last uh, credited thing was an episode of the series Sweet Justice. So, unfortunately, I, I don't know the circumstances there, but he passed away shortly thereafter. Oh, he, yeah, and he, I guess what, mark. I misspoke earlier when I mentioned about George Wagner. We were talking about the real George Wagner, which is the character yeah. that Patrick plays in McNee. But I, I said that he directed Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, but he produced Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. The director was a guy named Roy William Neal, which Christopher Stone's character is named after in this movie as William Neal. Yeah, matter of fact, in the credit, like uh, if you're naming off the characters, like in the credits, his role is R. William Bill Neal. So it's straight up, yeah. They just never call him. I guess they never mentioned that. Yeah, Roy Yeah, they they just, just it, it just says R. Right. So <laughs> as far as who we can mention, I mean, there was Belinda Belaski as Terry Fisher, Kevin McCarthy as Fred Fred Francis. But the more interesting ones to me were like the character actors that they got in this movie. Uh, John Carradine as Earl Kenton. Now he's kind of like the in the movie. What what would you say? He's like kind of the local guy that helps him go out and hunt. He's just the old dude that's standing around. Uh, and I don't know exactly what the fuck his role is in this movie, but he's there, right? He's kind of the uh, and he's also the kind of he's the person who in the scene, the very first scene you see him, and he's sort of the I don't know if you call it a catalyst, but he's kind of the one that lets them know that something's not quite right. Yeah, something's off here. He's you really- know because he's. What he, you know, he's basically, oh, I'm gonna jump, I'm gonna jump in the fire and burn myself. Bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, how he's suicidal. Why, why he wants to do that, but you know, but they're kind of thinking, like, what the hell is going on here? You know? Yeah, that's <laughs> one of many, like, what the fuck moments, like that kind of stuff. Like, that has nothing to do with anything, really. Like, what the hell was that? <laughs> like, <laughs> did they just let him improv and then uh, they, well, we'll fuck it, we'll leave it in. It's John Carradine. Um, <laughs> oh, well, that part, uh, the, my, what I took from that scene was that he was kind of, even though later in the movie, kind of, he doesn't think that way, but I, I, was, I was thinking that he just wanted to off it and kill himself because he's a, you know, he's a werewolf and I'm going to burn myself up because I, I you know, I don't want to do what I've been doing. But yet later in the movie, he contradicts that because he seems yeah. to be really into what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. He's the guy that's all in, like kind of leading the uh, charge a little bit. Um, yeah. It was a little frenetic in that way with some of the, the way they act and stuff in this movie, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into that shortly. But John Carradine, though, like one of the Hollywood legends, right, really, like for for tons of things. Like <laughs> this is no exaggeration. On IMDb, he has 354 credits that literally date all the way back to 1930. Uh, he was in a mo- an credited role in a movie called Bright Lights, his first credited role as Peter Richmond. So I guess that's what he worked at back in his early days, uh, Tollable David. Um, never heard of that. But, yeah, this dude worked for a long time in all types of movies, all the way up until 
uh, well, he, he passed in November of 1988 at the age of 82, but his last credited role, um, as far as like the movie got released, was a movie called Jacko in 1995. Uh, but before that, he was in the movie Buried Alive in 1989. I mean, I guess it kind of took the, the path of like the old school actor where like they were in more major movies and more well respected. And then like once they kind of got toward the end of their career, like, well, it was time to slum it in horror movies. You know, he was one of those kind of guys, you know, like, because that's kind of what he did, you know, at the better end. Yeah, he did that from the beginning, I guess, right? <laughs> Even for the beginning. Yeah, I remember, I remember true. hearing an interview with Joe Dante where he said that he, he loved John Carradine and he got him into this movie because of a lot of the roles he did, and that, but that he would accept roles that he probably should had no business accepting. Pretty much would just accept whatever came his way. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he, he got kind of pigeonholed into doing really cheap low-budget horror movies. So maybe either he was a really nice guy or he just really needed the money, one or the other. He would just do just about everything, and that's why he's got 354 acting credits over the course of his career. Oh, so he's the father of David Carradine. Yeah, the the famous Carradine family, where there's like a thousand of those running around <laughs> at one point or another. He would be mostly be known for, and I'll just list the top four here that are on IMDb. He was in Stagecoach back in 1939, The Grapes of Wrath in 1940, uh, which that's a great movie, by the way. If I, mean, I, I don't need to uh, hype up the Grapes of Wrath, but that is a fucking awesome, yeah. really, really. He, he was movie. fantastic in that movie. Yeah, no matter what yeah. you think about, you know his his roles in some of the cheaper horror movies. He did a great job in that. Movie. Yeah, I mean, actual great uh, acting. And he was also in the Ten Commandments, which is uh, a little weird for a guy like that to be. But you know that was kind of like an all star cast type of movie, you know, in 1956. But uh, it seemed it seemed like I recall him being like kind of out of place in a movie like that, you know, <laughs> he didn't really act the part, you know, but whatever, it's because of kind of the way he was, you know, it's almost like, which the next guy we'll get to here is Slim Pickens. His, his role in this movie is hilarious, right? Like <laughs> I, I, at least I found it hilarious. He plays the sheriff, right? Is, is Sam Newfield is his name. I guess, I guess that's the sheriff, right? I mean, I, um, of this little, okay. of the column. I know he's a, he's a police officer of some kind. Yeah. 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 I remember him as a sheriff. But the the funny really thing well. is, like, he's got 173 acting credits on IMDb that date back to 1946. He was in an uncredited role in Smokey. He played the rodeo cowboy. Uh, but his first credited role was in 1950, a movie called Rocky Mountain. I only point this out is because this dude is mostly, like, known for Western movies, right? Like, I know he played in a lot of other things, especially later in his career. But, like, he was a Western guy for the bulk of his career. And, like, he... he he doesn't really act like anything other than like he's a dude from the West. You know what I mean? Like even in this movie, like isn't this supposed to be on the outskirts of Los Angeles? But the sheriff sounds like he just came from West Texas. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know what's <laughs> around these here parts, but here we go. <laughs> it's, it's, and of course, everybody remember him from Blazing Saddles, right? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's <laughs> if there's nothing <laughs> no, else you're going to remember. Some voice and like you know, I keep you know. Somebody's going to have to go back and get a shitload of dimes. <laughs> if there's nothing else you remember Slim Pickens for, if you're not a Western guy, Donnie, I know you said you're not. You know, uh, Definitely not. My dad is. But Blazing Saddles is one of the funniest movies ever made. Oh, yeah. And and this guy, yeah. you know, if like I said, if you're not going to remember him from anything else, it's going to be Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles, uh, you know, in 1974. But he was also known for, he was in uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. <laughs> Uh, he was in The Getaway, uh, the movie 1941, you know, that Belushi flick, and uh, was Dan Aykroyd and a bunch of other people uh, in 1979. 
tons of, like I said, 173 credits, tons of movies, all the way up until uh, he passed in December of 1983 at the age of 64. So he's still relatively young, you know, for a guy that had such a long career. Uh, but his last role was a TV movie called Sawyer and Finn in 1983. But right before that um, was Pink Motel, a couple episodes of Filthy Rich, a uh, handful of other things. But The Howling was one of his last. Um, he only played in one, two, three, four TV movies and in a couple of TV series and one other movie called Christmas Mountain after The Howling. So th this was coming down the end of his uh, career here, uh, as you see him in... Uh, the Howling, but right before The Howling, Smoke, he was in a, a handful of episodes of BJ and the Bear. Oh, yes, the one that uh, Sheriff Lobo spun off of. Yes, yeah. yeah, so there you go. <laughs> There's another Sheriff Lobo connection. <laughs> Who? Uh, I guess we'll mention Dick Miller, right, because he's another guy that's going to yep. have a lot of pings on the old uh, connection radar as time goes on here. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, he passed away in January of 2019. We've talked about him before in at least yeah. a couple other movies that we've done, but he would be known for The Terminator, The Burbs, Gremlins, this movie. I mean, he's got 184 acting credits uh, on IMDb that date back to 1955. He was in a movie called Apache Woman. So I think he was another one of those kind of like, he was in a lot of Western films, and then um, Smoke, didn't he play in a lot of the... Uh, I'm blanking on uh, was it William Castle maybe or maybe it was after that. I'm blanking on the on um, he kind of uh, got into into that uh, Roger, Roger Roger Corman Corman, Roger Corman that's it yeah yeah Roger. yeah he was in a lot of the Roger Corman stuff so he was another one of those guys. His name was what Walter Paisley in this movie and it's actually it's been, he's used the Walter Paisley name in a few movies but it was first in a Roger Corman movie like Bucket of Blood where he was the star of that movie and that's where the Walter Paisley name came from and then I don't remember I. It's probably a trivia question we could do there. I haven't looked up at how many different movies he's played. The character of Walter Paisley has been more than a handful. Oh, that's a good question. If you recall, uh, most recently he was in Chopping Mall that we watched back in episode 57. So he, he's a guy yeah. that's going to pop up in a lot, of, a lot yeah. of movies that we've, you know, that we will watch and have watched, you know, a handful already. But uh, he's another guy. But yeah, I guess that's basically, I guess that's basically about all we needed to mention as far as the cast, right? Was there anyone else or anything else y'all wanted to point out before we? before we got into it uh just one just one thing uh one thing i was reading uh as far as uh um dick miller this was actually uh, of all of the movies he did this he he had said that this was his favorite the howling and it's funny too because like he's not really in it that much i mean like yeah he has a you know a nice little role yeah. when he's there but like you know i'd say he has a much bigger role saying gremlins right yeah 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 I saw an interview with him where he mentioned about that too. When he said, that, he said that when he first got the script for it, or when Joe Dante called him about it too, he said, "Well, I got, I got some, I got a job for you. I got a role for you in this movie." But and he's like, "How long? How long are you gonna need me for?" And he's like, "Just one day." And he's like, "What? What the hell? Why one day? Is that all you got?" For? And then he he did it anyways. And then yeah, like he said afterwards, he said he just loved. He didn't realize it at the time, but later. He realized that it ended up being his favorite movie of all the ones he's done. His favorite character, just I guess, just because of the lines he got in, or just his—I don't know why he didn't really elaborate on why, but he said it was his favorite role. I guess I'll point this out. Uh, two things out. First and foremost, and most importantly, I should have pointed this out earlier before we really started diving into this. We are a spoiler-filled podcast, so like basically from everything from here on in, we're going to give this movie. Away, although we've probably given a lot away already. But to, fair warning, if you haven't watched the movie, <laughs> pause this, go watch the movie, and then come back because we're going to spoil the shit out of it 
you know, uh, once we get into the movie itself here shortly. Another thing is I'll go ahead and go through some of these, uh, I guess, Easter eggs or little things that were, you know, pointed out throughout the movie. The Big Bad Wolf, the cartoon that's playing on the screen, that's the U by Works, uh, Little Boy Blue. You see that on the TV. So there you got the wolf, right? There's another connection. I thought it was funny too, like part of their research on werewolves is just, let's just watch everything that has something to do with werewolves. You know, like the wolf man and, <laughs> and everything. And I guess that kind of works as far as them watching the wolf man and giving clues to how somebody becomes a werewolf and all this. Because really up to this point in the 80s, there wasn't much True. werewolf movie coming out before you know. true i mean you know yeah we're sitting here 40 years later we're, we're sitting here 40 years yeah. later where we know more you know we've seen more so yeah i guess you're, you know you're not not wrong there i guess it would be reasonable throughout the movie you see and, and in that one scene you see the sheriff eating like a can of beans or a can of chili it's wolf brand chili <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you notice that a couple of times like in the movie yeah. like there's a yeah. can of wolf chili wolf chili there a few times right yeah <laughs> um, i think there's an empty can of wolf chili sitting in the the cabin yeah of, uh, what yeah, 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 I think it's like sitting on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a the book uh, by Allen Ginsberg called Howl that that appears somewhere in the background. Uh, of course, the mention of this jockey Wolfman Jack, uh, you know, that's a direct reference right there, obviously, and that would be more timely back then, right? Yeah, that, I think that was uh, wasn't that her husband in the movie, kind of making fun of the fact that she's been in the she hasn't been in a rural area at all for yeah, her whole, yeah. whole life. Yeah, her only. The only those of is Wolfman Jack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the only the only bit of nature she got was Wolfman Jack or something like that. Um, <laughs> there's a bottle of Wolfen brand medicine on the counter. Um, that, I think you actually see that a couple of times. That's another one of those things where like the little label on it says Wolfen. That in their cabin, Karen and Bill in their cabin, there's a picture of a wolf who uh, killed a sheep. So that's somewhere in the background. And uh, like you mentioned earlier, many of the characters in the film are named after horror film directors who directed other films that featured werewolves, including, yep. George, in, including George Wagner, who directed The Wolfman. Others include R. William Neal, who directed Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Terrence Fisher, who directed The Curse of the Werewolf. Freddie Francis, Legend of the Werewolf in 1975. Erie Kenton, who directed House of Dracula, uh, which also had John Carradine in that movie, who, play, who plays Kenton in The Howling. <laughs> Sam, and he played Dracula in that movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sam Newfield, uh, who directed The Mad Monster in 1942. Uh, Charles Barton, who directed Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948. Jacinto Molina, who directed La Marca del Hombre Lobo in 1968. And Lou Landers, who directed The Return of the Vampire. So these are all characters in the movie. Oh, about that, Jacinto Molina is Paul Nashi. That's his real name. Oh, okay. Jacinto Molina. There you go. So they just used his real name for this. Yeah. Um, I knew there had to be some connection there when I read the name of the movie, La Marca del Hombre Lobo. I'm like, oh, well, that's got to have yeah. something to do with the Paul Nashie stuff, right? Like you mentioned, Dick Miller's bookstore owner, uh, the, the role, or that role, his name is Walter Paisley. It's the same role that he uh, had in uh, the movie A Bucket of Blood in 1959. Let's see, also present in the bookstore is the mummified grandmother in an armchair from the attic of the house in the original version of the, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I had read that as well, yeah. That's, that's they, a pretty cool cut. Yeah, they used a lot of the uh, uh, set dressings from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in, in The Howling. I say a lot. You know, there's uh, some holdovers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason for 
uh, Bob Burns, right? Being the, uh, I think Bob Burns was the set director on this film, and he was the same. He was set director on Texas Chainsaw. Mm. Screenwriter and uh, future director John Sales, Dante's former producer Roger Corman, who directed A Bucket of Blood, and science fiction horror film personality Forrest J. Ackerman all have cameos in the movie. And now Forrest J. Ackerman, I think he was famous for what that uh, famous monsters or whatever magazine, right, Smoke? Yeah, the editor of Famous Monsters Filmland back then, up till whatever point it was when I forget what, exactly what year he died. It wasn't too too long ago, I don't think. So that's a pretty cool little uh, throwback there, you know, having a guy like that. And uh, Roger Corman makes a cameo. He's the dude standing outside the phone booth. Remember when she's on the phone and the guy's got his back turned? Yeah. That's Roger Corman. And they made a little, they, they kind of, he kind of parodied himself when he was in there. He was digging for change, you know, in the, in the little payphone thing to see if there's any quarters in there. And that's kind of a dig at, <laughs> at Corman being a penny pincher when it yeah. came to making movies. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, a lot of in jokes and, uh, stuff you'd really have to like know what you're, you know, you'd have to dig around to find this stuff out or you'd really know your shit as you were sitting there watching it, you know, like I'm sure there was somebody that was a real big fan of horror stuff and knew a lot about that stuff. Watching this in 1981, just rolling, you know, like, oh, yeah. oh my God. Yeah, he's, you know. <laughs> yeah, when I saw this back in whatever it was, it wasn't 81. It was probably like 80, I don't know, three or 84. So, yeah, I didn't know any of that stuff <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at that yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, you'd but have to be really into it. Later on, like it. in the 90s, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Roger Sportman. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd have to be really into it, I would imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool to point out. So, did you guys have anything else before we get into the movie itself here? Uh, not Well, there was a picture of one of the other little Easter eggs was a picture of... Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> was on uh, in the office, the doctor's, the uh, Patrick McNeese office. It was on the wall, and there's a picture of Lon Chaney Jr. Just as, not, of course, not as the Wolfman or anything. Yeah. <laughs> a, and I did like the uh, uh, the scene of them talking to the gypsy woman from the Wolfman. Yeah. Because uh, I think oh. you see it like what twice or whatever. Uh, since we yeah. since we recently watched the Wolfman, and that's like the little audio drop we have in the open for the Summer of the Wolf. That was pretty cool. Little. Pretty, little, pretty oh, yeah. cool little pull for us, right? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The management of this drive-in theater is happy to announce you can enjoy your favorite form of movie entertainment regardless of rain. No longer will it be necessary to let rain spoil your fun. Now you can keep your windshield clear and dry with a drizzle guard. Simply attach it to your windshield, and in a jiffy, you're enjoying the movie without constantly running your windshield wipers. For you, the listeners of the All-American Spook Show podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. So I go on Audible, and I, <laughs> I type in The Howling, because I'm thinking, like, well, this was based on a, you know, a book called The Howling. So I, honestly, I'm not, that might be on here, but I'm not seeing that. Like, you know, that, that the book The Howling is actually on Audible or not. But I did find a couple other interesting ones to bring up. Uh, there's The Mysterious Howling, The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place, book one. It's like a kid's book. Uh, this one's about five and a half hours long. Will, this one's for you, though. It's called Not the Brosif. <laughs> what in God's name is that? Well, it's Howling Hills Heat, book one. And it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's it's erotica. I'll say that. Uh you said Howling Hills heat, not Harlem heat. <laughs> no, no, this is this is much worse than that. <laughs> uh, that's by Liam Kingsley, and that is three and a half, a little over three and a half hours long. So, 
that is just straight up like a, an erotic werewolf book. I'm I'm assuming, and that's book one, by the way. Uh, there are apparently a number of these <laughs> of this series. Wouldn't that be or no? Oh. Hold on, because now it's 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 piqued Will's curiosity enough for me to look a little bit past it here. Um, there's it at least fours. there's at least four of these books on <laughs> on Audible. Uh, you got not the Brosif, not the X, and by the way, not is spelled K N O T, like not like tying the knot, not the X, not the Manny, and not <laughs> and not the enemy. These are all available on Audible for for Will's listening pleasure. So uh, if any of that piques your interest, uh, to download your free audiobook, you know you can go get that first book of the series. <laughs> You can go to Not the Spook Show. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't go to Not the yeah. Spook Show. No, no, no. That there's no telling what rabbit hole that might lead you down. <laughs> uh, but to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com/spookshow. Again, that's audibletrial.com/spookshow for your free audiobook. There you go. I've uh, I've occupied at least a few hours of your day for the next few days, Will. Thank God. The Howling Hill series. All right, so I guess we. We'll... <laughs> <laughs> I got the story in me, and it's just got to get out. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's a, it's a raging boil. I need it to, <laughs> I need to take the cover off and just let it fly. Thought this one book was good enough, but no, it just, just burst open. There's three more books in me at least, and I know I've got a fifth. So just you wait. <laughs> your, your inner wolf cop gonna bust out? Yeah. <laughs> So speaking of Wolf Cop, you know, that kind of set the bar here this summer uh, as far as wolf sex, werewolf sex has gone. Um, we're going to get into that a little bit more here as we get into the movie itself. So I guess we'll go ahead and uh, dive in. So uh, the movie starts where you're introduced to Karen White. That's Dee Wallace's character. She's like a, a TV news anchor, like an L.A. TV station. And she's being, apparently she's been stalked by a serial killer named Eddie Quist. Uh, now you're kind of thrown into this right away. Like it, t- it might. I-, I don't know about you guys, but it takes you a minute to figure out what the fuck's going on here, right? Like, <laughs> like because it's it's almost like there should have been another movie before this to set oh, up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to set it's up the whole this shit. They could have done a prequel with Eddie Quist being a werewolf serial killer. Oh yeah. Would've been. I mean, it, yeah, that would have been, and, and for the time, it would have been perfect too. You know, with the the slasher stuff really taking off around this time period and. Uh, yeah. It, it would have worked for sure if you if you'd have gone back and say even did this movie and then the second movie just go back and like tell his story you know I think it would have worked um, and God yeah, knows I mean, there, it would have been much better than any of that shit they put out after yeah. well really after this one but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> certainly after the third one but yeah you're kind of thrown into the middle of this so like basically like she's working with the cops to kind of bust the guy so like they come up with this scheme where she's gonna she agrees to meet Eddie and. uh and it's in like this. It's, it's it's in a porn theater. Like, also like, am I the only one that gets distracted when you see these old like seventies and eighties movies with the porn theaters and stuff? Where I'm just like, God damn, you know that's a nasty place. Just a nasty, <laughs> nasty fucking place. Yeah, yeah I've, I've got some anecdotes on that too. As far they actually shot it in a real porn store. God and lord. D. <laughs> D. Wallace was that that look of like, what the hell disgust kind of look on D. Wallace's face was real. She was she was super uncomfortable with it. Yeah, at a box, they barely show. They don't really show a whole. You don't really. You kind of see some of the box art or whatever, but they kind of. What was that? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> they show the box. Is that what you're saying? The box art. Yeah, yeah. yeah the box. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 The, bo- the box art <laughs> on the box that the videotape is in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, like I'm always like, anytime I see these things, especially where like, what is that room for? Right? Like, it's just, you go in there, you pop a quarter in and then you just go to town. Like these nasty fucking places. Like who the (laughs) hell, who the hell would do that? I mean, I know we heard, (laughs) I think we know of a few people that would probably Okay. All right. But yeah, (laughs) yeah. Still, I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> oh, no, I know on 42nd Street in New York at the time when all this type of stuff was going on, they, they had what they would call them the trench coat, or no, the raincoat something, the raincoat brigade or something like that, because these people would go in there in raincoats because God. <laughs> well, you, can, you can imagine why they go in there with raincoats, right? Yeah. Because it's waterproof. <laughs> so they just, and they could just like be free-flowing under there, I guess. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't need to go any further. No, no. I mean, look, we are not a family-friendly podcast, but that's where I draw the line. <laughs> that's why I didn't want to go any further. You know where yeah, you know. Where, yeah, yeah, I know. Where, yeah, yeah, I know where you're yeah. going. But yeah, that's that's horrible. That is horrible. Continue. Continue. <laughs> no, I want to talk more about this. <laughs> no, but anyway, so like that. This is where they've set it up. Like he's gonna meet Karen there, and this is where the gun. The cops are gonna bust it, and like. This is another one of those Abbott and Costello fucking Keystone cop type deals, right? Like, the cops lost her somewhere. They don't know where the hell she's at. I guess this wasn't... Uh, what they say, like, they have, like, a little radio thing going on, but, like, all the neon in the area, like, interferes with the radios. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, they, they've... I've never heard that. No, no, exactly. Like, <laughs> is that even... Well, people will just accept it. Yeah. It was accepted fact long ago, so no one ever <laughs> talks about it anymore, but... Yeah, it sounds right to me. So they just lost track of her because of this, and like he's got her in the uh, the little porn booth there. And, and that's what I want to say. Like you didn't have people telling her. No, no, we just got people driving around in the neighborhood, <laughs> but nobody was telling. Her. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, not one person thought to actually follow her around. So she goes to this thing, and like she's in the room, and then he 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 sneaks in or whatever, and he's like right behind her. And uh, she turns around to see him, but we can't see his face, and she screams. Right at that moment, the cops have just happened to come into the the, the shop to look for her, and they hear her scream. So they go back there, and uh, they just start. They just pull out the guns and start shooting. Like, like I don't even think they saw anything. Right? It's just like, oh yeah, shit! They shot him through the door. A woman is screaming, bam, bam, bam! Yeah, and they shot him through the door. <laughs> like immediately. Yeah. <laughs> No inspection, like, is this the guy? Who are you? You know, no, just a woman screaming. <laughs> Thank God they didn't kill the reporter. Yeah, exactly. So they shot uh, Eddie Quist. He's dead. And uh, Karen is safe. But now, like, she doesn't remember, like, basically what happened. I guess it's, like, amnesia or, like, it's so traumatic that, like, she's blocking this moment out kind of thing. Um, so she goes to her therapist, which we've talked about before, is Dr. George Wagner. And uh, he decides to send them to her, her and her husband. Oh, I should go back before we get out of the porno section. There's more to discuss there, huh? <laughs> well, they, they, that, the movie that was playing in that booth that they were watching was uh, not an existing movie. Like Joe Dante and them, they had to shoot that. So they, that footage is actually, they shot the footage for that porn yeah. room. But, yeah, I'm sure uh, they air quotes had to shoot that <laughs> that was uh, i was thinking that but, you know. than what it was i mean it's kind of rough it was like you know it was like a it was a rape scene basically yeah but uh 
pretty much rougher than what they showed on there. I think I don't know if you watched the uh, you watched the Blu-ray, right, Josh? Yeah, yeah, I watched yeah. the Screen Factory Blu-ray. Because I watched the porno, yeah. not the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about this uh, porno that Joe Dante shot. That's what I, I saw on the Screen Factory Blu-ray. <laughs> well, they did show more of that on the uh, in the special features section. In the, oh, okay. The yeah, editor. No, I, I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough time to like go through any of the special features. Although I did notice there was a lot of them on there. So yeah, I can check yeah. That out. I went through a little bit of them, and yeah. that one of them was the editors talking about stuff that you know was cut out or whatever, or, or stuff they made in the movie. And that was one scene they showed that they didn't show in the movie was, <laughs> you know, they threw this girl up on the car or whatever, and then doing what they do to her in the movie that you see. But there's another scene where they, somebody had a toilet plunger. And they, the camera shows them with the plunger, and they show them thrusting the plunger somewhere. <laughs> Good lord! In the, in the toilet, they don't right? show that part. But they still they don't they didn't show anything to do with that part of the scene of the plunger at all in the movie anyway. So I guess they just thought that was just too much, <laughs> which it was. It would have been everybody would have been talking about that scene in the porno shot more than they would have been anything else that's going on in the movie probably. Yeah, I just thought it was really like, damn, that's really that's that's messed up. <laughs> They left that part out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's pretty rough. And they had to scratch the film. He said they just they took something and scratched and film up and made it look like it was run through the rear to give it that grindhouse porn look. <laughs> Once again, brought to you by the director of Looney Tunes Back in Action and Small Soldiers. <laughs> oh, Back in Action, all right. Looney Tunes Back in Action. Oh. Right. <laughs> um, so the doctor recommends that they go to this place called The Colony, her, her and her husband, Bill. It's like this, uh, it's like a resort for people that, I guess, kind of like a rehab type of place where you can just kind of get away from it and, you know, you have treatment with the doctor and everything like that. So they go, and it, it's filled full of, like, these weirdos, right? <laughs> Instantly, like, you've got the, the, the John Carradine character, this other, like, this woman, I guess she, they call her, like, a nymphomaniac, basically, right? Marsha Quist. Yeah. You're introduced to all these random people, and then instantly, like, she's already trying to hit on Bill, like, as soon as they show up. She basically comes on to Bill, like, you know, like, later on that night or something like that. Or, or No, no, he, he goes out hunting, right, and he shoots a rabbit or some animal, and then he goes to her to get her to, like, you know, I guess dress the animal and cook it or whatever. And uh, she basically just goes straight for the kill, like, all right, well... Uh, I'll cook that rabbit later. Let's fuck, you know? <laughs> and he's just like, he's just like, no, and then leaves. And then he's like instantly uh, attacked by a werewolf like as soon as he leaves. And he gets, <laughs> and he gets scratched on the arm. After that, uh, Karen's kind of freaked out by the whole thing, obviously. So she calls her friend Terry uh, to come to the colony. And uh, uh, the other, like her husband or boyfriend or whatever he is, he can't come because he's working on other shit. So she comes alone. They, they basically, uh, they, they meet up there at the colony. She makes the connection of, of Eddie has something to do with this place because, like, when they went to search his apartment, Eddie Quist, they found, like, this sketch where it's, like, this uh, this little bay or whatever where the water and the rocks and the, and the trees, like, it's perfect. Like, it's a perfect sketch of this little area. And, like, she goes to, like, uh, investigate or whatever, and she finds this spot. So now she's, like, made the connection to uh to eddie quist here something's going on they also find out that eddie's body has disappeared from the morgue like, I, I thought that was pretty funny too like where they go and like huh where's he at <laughs> look at all these call marks well you don't think he walked out of here on his own do you <laughs> i don't know all the evidence kind of points to the contrary but uh whatever <laughs> yeah call marks and blood on the from the inside right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> around the same time karen begins to suspect that 
Bill is, is hiding a secret, you know, from her, like something's going on. But basically it's kind of like, almost like he's going through the, the werewolf change or whatever. And like, now I guess he's just attracted to, uh, Marsha, right? I guess that's kind of what's going on here. So then later that night, he, uh, just randomly walks out into the woods and there's a campfire <laughs> and, uh, him and Marsha drop, drop trowel and then just go to town. Like they have, they have animated sex right out there in the woods. Like they, they both start like werewolfing out, you know, like with the teeth and the, you know, everything, they start kind of transforming. It's like, as they're having sex, they both turn into werewolves. Right. And then like that, that last part, like as it's like, kind of like the camera is panning away or whatever, like you just straight up see two cartoon wolves, <laughs> like kind of congregating there, you know, just about to have sex or are having sex, whatever the hell's going on there. But it's clearly animated. Like, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah, um, it's that, awful. That part does not hold up. But, you know, no. I, I guess you can understand why they did it that way, I guess. But, like, based on everything else in this movie, it kind of just sticks out, right? Like, there was a lot of good special effects in this movie. Uh, but the, uh, what, what sticks out? The, the sex scene, of course. Or... <laughs> Well, it just you know, just the animation of the whole thing. Like, there's a lot of good special effects in this movie, and they're like, you would think they would have tried to figure that out in some other way than like, <laughs> you know, like this highlighted animation. You know, it was just bad, but um, it's brief at least. I guess you could say budget, that. the budgetary thing. But you would think they would could use the werewolf suit set like they use it later, in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> you know, and place the camera to certain places or whatever. Yeah. Well, at least we didn't. Yeah, at least we didn't get an exploding wolf dick in this movie, so there's that. But we did get werewolf sex, but none of that, thankfully. By the way, I just want to point out something. Like, like this comes up later, but it has part to do with this. The the, the woman scratches him on the back, right? Mm. Oh, like on the and, arm, I think. Yeah. Oh, you mean like yeah, during yeah. the sex? She gets he yeah, scratches during, the back, during yeah. sex. She scratches him yeah. on the back. Uh-huh. These wolves can regrow limbs, but they can't regrow uh, a scratch on the back. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's during sex, you see, so that's got to stay. Plus, uh, it was animated, so, yeah, you know. It didn't really happen. They just kind of did that later <laughs> What do you on. mean? They were doing weird things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> In an uncomfortable place. At the back of a Volkswagen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, while investigating this, like, the next day, uh, Terry is attacked by a werewolf in a cabin. And she escapes after she cut off the werewolf's hand. Like, she crawls up underneath the house or something like that. He reaches in and, like, she's able to, to cut off its hand. And then she runs to Dr. Wagner's office and then calls, you know, her boyfriend, whatever he is, Chris, who now they've figured out, like, all right, something, you know, not right is going on here at the colony. So while she's on the phone with the dude, <laughs> she's looking through the uh, the filing cabinet. They're like, oh, got this file, got this file. And then, like, a werewolf hand comes in, like, huh? <laughs> and she almost, like, hands him the file, right? And she, and she looks up, like, bleh! <laughs> <laughs> I would hope that that was intentional, right? Like that's an, that's got to be intentional comedy, right? Because otherwise, like, what the hell? Uh, I, I think I had to pause the movie for a couple of minutes there. I was laughing my ass off when that happened. But after I unpaused the movie and it continued, basically she gets tossed around the office there. I think. Well, no, this is when she like when it reaches in, right? She uh, she fights it and then she realizes that that's no, that wasn't Eddie, right? No, it was, but like he, he, you didn't see him transform here. That's a little bit later on, right? Uh, so yeah, he he's kind of in that partial state, right, where he's sort of, I mean, he he didn't look fully human. Yeah, 
Yeah, okay, yeah, like, so, like, yeah, th this isn't the big transformation scene just yet. So, like, Eddie, Eddie attacks her, and, like, she's killed, and he, like, bites her on the throat, like, you know, you know uh, severing her jugular vein, you know, so she's dead. And then, like, just hides her over in the corner or something like that, right? And, but Chris, meanwhile, is on the phone listening to this on the other end. And then uh, he, then it just cuts to him going down to that bookstore, you know, where Dick Miller was. And he buys these silver bullets that they referenced earlier. Like, yeah, he, somebody even had these silver bullets made up. And he just goes and grabs them and, like, throws some cash on the counter and takes off. Um, so he's on his way to the colony with the silver bullets. Now, this is where I believe this is where the big transformation scene from Eddie Quist happens. Because Karen is confronted by Eddie, who is, you know, back to life now, basically, right? Like, no, I saw you die. Like, well, you know, here I am, you know. <laughs> and then he transforms into a werewolf. Now, this is a cool transformation scene, no question. You know, fairly, in my opinion, fairly on par with an American werewolf in London. But, man, this takes forever, does it not? Like, it's like 10 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. And the whole time she's just sitting there staring at the motherfucker. Yeah. Like. <laughs> That's kind of like what I was talking about with American Werewolf in London, too, or any, any werewolf transformation movie where they really show the effects going on. It's like, you have all the time in the world to just run and get away. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, but, under, you know, they're trying to show how cool, you know, how, how, how good their the effects are. I get but it. But yet, just, you can't edit it in any way to make it make sense that the person would still just be there watching it, unless they're just, I'm totally in awe of what's happening right now, <laughs> or I'm paralyzed with fear or something or whatever, you know. <laughs> I guess that's how you can explain it off, but... Dude, like, like you said, yeah. it's like ten minutes, man. Like, me in real life, I see somebody like their eyes change in front of me, or a fang pops I'm out of their mouth or something. I'm, there's, like I said, I've, I think I've said this before. There's a Josh-sized hole in the wall, like Looney Tunes style. Like, <laughs> I'm gone, man. Like, I ain't hanging around. But she stands there for the entire ten-minute transformation. <laughs> then, like, when he's fully formed, like, ah, here I am on the werewolf. Then she grabs like a little can of acid. And uh, throws it in his face, you know, and then runs. <laughs> I just wanted to see that out. Here's some acid, asshole. See ya. Later, Chris finally, uh, you know, arrives to the colony. And uh, he is then confronted by, you know, acid-faced Eddie. <laughs> who, who he's standing there and talks some shit or whatever. And then he starts to transform again. And I'm thinking, like, oh, here we go again. You know, <laughs> you're about to see another 10-minute 10, 10 transformation out of Eddie. Um but he basically just shoots the dude down with the silver bullets. So now, you know, Eddie's gone. Like halfway through the transformation, right? So at least he was smart enough to like, no, fuck this, pow! You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then this is when you realize that pretty much everybody in the colony are werewolves. And they can all, like, turn into werewolves at will. Um, and this, like, like I said, this is different from a lot of the other movies we've watched. They don't need the full moon to do it. Like, they can just say, you know, fuck it. It's time to werewolf out, you know? And then they can start... <laughs> Shifting. Fuck it. Yeah, they all said it. Like, fuck it, and then they start turning into werewolves. <laughs> that was in that scene that did, what is it, the scene Dick Miller was in, right, where he kind of lays down that that lore, that new lore or whatever it is that he said. Oh, the Hollywood Hollywood's all full of shit. They, you know, they don't have to have a full moon. They can just transform whenever they feel like it. Yeah, <laughs> we so, kind of dispelled that other part, and that was just basically so they could have all these transformations without having to wait a whole month again. He did it, but he also said at the end of that, fuck it, man, I'm just trying to sell books, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I take Visa and MasterCard. That was the scene Forey Ackerman was in, that Forey Ackerman was, like, picking up something. He goes, you going to buy that or what? And he put it down and left, I think, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That, that Forey Ackerman guy. 
it goes to show that we've seen a lot of different versions of the werewolf lore through all these movies that we've watched. You know, throughout the Summer of the Wolf here, the Wolfman, American Werewolf in London, even Wolf Cop. Now this, they all kind of put their own twist and spin on the lore. You know, it's almost like every time there's, well, you know, that's not real, but this is real. You know, like because basically in this one, the silver bullets will kill them and fire. Right? Isn't that the conclusion? I think in this one you come to, yeah, fire and the and the bullets will do it. Yeah, and it's got to be silver bullets, right? Because I, yeah, did we mention yeah, did, yeah. did did we get to the scene yet where you know digging the bullet out? Uh, well, I, I, we I, I yeah, it. I kind of skimmed over that. I think that was in the transformation, right? Like you're supposed to be yeah. dead, and then he pulls the bullet out of his forehead, and it starts to transform. <laughs> yeah, he says, "I'm going to give you a piece of my mind," and he digs his finger yeah. in there and yeah. pulls out the regular bullet that he was shot with. So yeah, you know, letting you know, of course, that it's got to be a silver bullet. Yeah, kill a yeah, werewolf. Another. Another, adding another layer to it, you know, that it has to be the silver bullet. But Karen and Chris, they survive these attacks, you know, by all the other people that are, like, you know, werewolfing out. And then they just torch the colony to the ground. Then after that, uh, they leave. And Karen, you know, like, all right, I'm going to warn the entire world about, you know, that this is a thing, that these werewolves and this place and everything. And they start doing, like, a special worldwide broadcast to announce it, you know, to everybody she's telling her story right and then she starts to turn into a werewolf so like that's the big twist at the end here is that like uh holy shit she got bit and now she's a werewolf but i guess i guess they're both aware of that right like going into this so like that's the plan like all right she's gonna tell the story then she's gonna werewolf out and then he's gonna kill her i mean that's kind of the assumption i came to right like they had this yeah. all planned out yeah. Uh, and then he was going to, you know, pop her with the bullet. She's gone. But basically, that's the big reveal here is that, like, she has become a werewolf because she got bit by her husband or boyfriend or whatever it was, Bill, at the colony. So they they do this. And then, like, everybody, it shows, like, a bunch of people wa watching at home. And some of them are like, oh, my God. And then other one's like, man, look at the special effects. You know, like, <laughs> I guess just showing the jaded portion of people that yeah. like you know they don't really <laughs> believe what they're saying here you know so basically that's the culmination of it. it's like that it's just some cool special effects then it shows marcia remember marcia quist she actually managed to escape the colony and she's at a, a bar with like a dude that like orders like a steak or something like that um while they're watching this on tv and then that's the credits like as as the dude's cooking like the the, the steak or the burger or whatever on the on the griddle like, you know, just flipping it over and cooking it, like, during the entire credits. That was it. Now, I believe there was a, a cut scene at the end of this, if I recall, right? But I'm blanking on what it was right away. It was from the Wolfman? Wolfman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what it was. Yep, yep. Yeah, and then, like, it just plays that scene and then cuts the TV off or whatever. Um, yeah. But, so, yeah, there you go. That's The Howling from 1981. So, Donnie, what's your uh, star rating on this, man? Oh, man, you know, from um, just basing all of the Easter eggs and just this is a, uh, you know, it's very loaded. Um, they, you know, there's some things that kind of fall flat. Uh, but, you know, overall, it's just a it's just an awesome, awesome movie as far as, you know, werewolf, uh, you know, werewolf movies go. I, I'm going to put it at I'm going to give it a, a three and a half. Will, what, where are you at? I'm probably going to go about a three on this. You know, kind of echoing a lot of the same things that Donnie said. Like, like it, there are some some big issues, but I think it's more of a, a side of the times. You know, like, like we, we don't do claymation anymore and, and all that <laughs> stuff. Uh, the the but, somewhat dated, you know, like, af dated effects and stuff like that. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. But but looking past that, I mean, you know, it was, it was an interesting uh, twist to have, like, 
the colony just be filled with with werewolves and and uh, the twist at the end of uh, having her turn into the Chewbacca because she looked god awful. Uh, Chewbacca. But, <laughs> well, I mean, she looked nothing like anybody else in the entire. Oh, no, she. Yeah, I'd say it was closer to an Ewok. It's kind of what she yeah. was like. She was, she was like a cute, was, a cute werewolf. There was a reason for that, too, and it was because uh, I guess they were trying to go for she's not as as jaded and evil as these other werewolves were in this colony. She's sort of uh, innocent, and so they went with a cutesy, you know, a shorter snout, very feminine <laughs> type yeah, werewolf. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's one zero of the, sense. Just with the visual. <laughs> But yeah, yeah I, did really... I, I would go with the three. Uh, all right, uh, smoke. That goes to you, man. What do you say? I like I end up I like this one a little bit better than uh, I do American Werewolf in London. I love love American Werewolf in London. I don't know something about just the the setting. I like the setting out the, the werewolf colony out in the rural area. It almost gives it that folklore. You know, it takes it out of the city and gives it kind of into that gothic folklore mode, even though it's still in modern times. I like that, and I love all the like Easter eggs, like Donnie had mentioned. It's, uh, it was fun picking all those out, and I'm not even sure. Who knows if I even picked all of them out. Yeah. And that does warrant repeated viewings whenever. Because oh, yeah. I do always that I didn't see before when it comes to those Easter eggs. Like the Forrest J. Ackerman stuff. I I don't know if I, I probably had read somewhere down the line, but I'd forgotten that he was in, that, what scene he was in. And then uh, seeing him in the bookstore, I don't remember seeing him there before. Yeah. And the other times I was So that's always fun when they do that type of stuff. And then catching the names. I know I didn't catch all those names before this time around. You know, like the little obscurans, like Terry Fisher, I think when the the girl, the, I can't remember her name, but the girl that comes later to the colony, the friend of uh, D. Wallace. Yeah. And her, Terry Terry Fisher, yeah, with yeah. that Terrence Fisher yep. from Hammer Films. That Just catching those little things. I didn't, I know I caught call more this time around than I did the last time or the time before. That's always fun. But uh, yeah, I'm going to go with a four on this. I think I gave... American Werewolf, what, three and a half stars? Uh, you gave that, well, we all gave that movie three and three quarter stars. Three and three quarter, okay. Yep. So, yeah, I'll go with four. Well, I, I do like it just a little bit better than American Werewolf in London as far as repeatab- repeated viewing for me. It gets at least as good or a little better each time I watch it. Yeah, for me, I think I'm going to go like pretty much the exact same score as an American Werewolf in London. I, I, like, I enjoy this uh, for different reasons, pretty much just the same as that movie, really. And uh, to kind of put it in perspective, this movie, what did we say was released? Like, like I think it was like April 10th, something like that. Uh, I think is what we said. Yeah, April 10th of 1981. And American Werewolf in London opened up here in the U.S. August 21st of 1981. So this one would have been, The Howling would have been first as far as like what you would have seen if you went to the theaters back in 1981. Uh, the transformation and the special effects and this movie would have been you would have saw this first, you know, before the big John Landis movie. So I, I point that out just to say, like, this wouldn't have been, like, by the time you saw that other one, this would have been like, well, hell, that, that movie, The Howling, that was pretty damn cool with that transformation. You know, l- let's see what they got, you know. <laughs> and then, like, Rick Baker takes it up a little bit, you know, probably. I would say his transformation scene was a little better than this. Would, would we agree there? Or what do you guys yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do. I think Directly I mean, comparing I do when it comes to the final werewolf transformation scene and sequence, I do like the ones in the Howling, the anthropomorphic, you know, standing on the hind legs type werewolves, that more so than I do the on you know standing on all fours, big, huge, mutated werewolf that it turned into in uh, American Werewolf in London. But 
the transformation scene, I definitely like American Werewolf better. But I think as far as the story and what the movie is and everything, I like this just as much myself as an American Werewolf with uh, American Werewolf in London. So I'm going to go with the same rating on this three and three quarters for me. Um, so all together, I mean, uh, uh, a cumulative great score, and we definitely recommend it. There's no doubt about that. I think all together you put that together, it's slightly what – Three and a half stars, something like that. So that's a pretty good recommendation from us, I'd yeah. say. So. Ask me to do any math involving fractions. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't do it. Damn fractions. <laughs> All right, so with that, uh, Donnie, I guess we'll, t- we'll toss to you first. Connections from the crypt. <laughs> All right, as the crypt keeper keeps on laughing, uh, Donnie, <laughs> What you got for your crypt connections, man? <laughs> I was going to let it end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. <nah. laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, much has been made about the uh, uh, the special effects and the howling like like we've like we spoke spoke about the last, you know, uh, hour or so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, as far as connections to past spooks uh, episodes, Roger George, uh, who has. 122 IMDb credits was actually a crewman on uh, the special effects for the Howling. Uh, he also is connected to two previous episodes: episode 57, Chopping Mall, and um, episode 24, Never Too Young to Die. So that's on the crew side. Uh, three connections with uh, one of the special effects crewmen from the Howling. On the cast side, we, you know, we. Alluded to this earlier, Dee Wallace. She has, in addition to The Howling, uh, which is this episode number 69, she was also in Popcorn, which was episode 53. She she was in episode 25, which was Three from Hell. Critters, which was episode 11. So Dee Wallace with four Spook Show connections. That might be the most right there, or pretty high. Does that beat out Gene Simmons? Oh, actually, I do have a uh, a quick count. Let's see. Actually, not conjuring. Actually, they're right on. Actually, it does beat out. Uh, it does beat out Gene Simmons. D. Wallace with with four. Yeah, uh, Gene, Gene, Gene Simmons, Simmons has three. Yep. Uh, Never too young to die. Kiss meets uh, Phantom of the Park and Trick or Treat. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking in my head like what we watched with D. Wallace in it, and I forgot about popcorn. Yeah, yeah, I did too. Yeah. All right, so that goes to Will. This your little bit. Kill. 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 And away you go. <laughs> uh, so I got ten. So kind of going through them. Uh, Harry Fisher got mauled by the werewolf, and then uh, everybody else got uh, killed by Chris Holland. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so Eddie got shot. Uh, T T C got shot. Fred got shot. Doctor Wagner got shot. Uh, Keaton and Barton got burned alive. Donna got shot. Sam got shot, and Karen got shot at the very end. I'm assuming that's kind of. There might be a couple in there that like got burned up that maybe you may not have counted. Possibly, I don't know how many possibly. were in there. Yeah. Yeah. So there might have been a couple more, at least in that uh, barn or whatever the hell that was where the, they burned it down. So, yeah, that sounds about right. So that naturally follows into gore score. 
So what you got, Professor? Oh, I'm, uh, as as everybody knows, has been listening, and if you don't, then uh, the Gore score is based on Chaz, the late great Chaz Balin's. You know, that was his invention, the Gore score, and his uh, book, the Gore score, and his magazine, Deep Red. Uh, and any time that Chaz has the movie in there that we've done before, I usually try to reference that. And so he did give one to the Howling, and he gave it a seven. And I think I'm I'm based on you know it's kind of it can be kind of a uh, subjective in some respects or maybe based on that time period versus now. I I might say that's a little bit higher than what it would be. I think I, I might adjust it for us for nowadays. Let's, let's adjust it for how many years have gone between you know the time that that rating was given and now and how much you know different movies have been had a ton of gore in it. So and after we've what after we've seen movies like Terrifier. <laughs> in the time period since. And, uh, yeah, I don't think it... I think I'm going to go down to a six on this one with the gore. It, what did it have? It had the Eddie digging the bullet out of his head. You know, not that there was a whole ton of blood in that, but he was just digging around in there. It was pretty nasty. And then the uh, the chopping off of the the arm of the werewolf that was chasing D. Wallace, right? right. Was that D. Wallace? No, that was the, the, uh, the Terry. Girl. Yeah, that was Terry. That's right. There's a little bit of the werewolf gore in there, like biting down and chomping and whatnot. But it wasn't, it wasn't terribly gory. So I think I would... Uh, I'm going to back down from Chaz and go to six. He could have been factoring in the the werewolf transformation. You know, that was pretty gnarly too, you know, I guess. But not yeah. overly gory, gory, just, you know, pretty nasty, you know. <laughs> yep. To be considered. Um, yep, yeah, I think that's fair enough, though. Either way. That's it for the howling. Uh, we'll go ahead and tease what we're going to be talking about next time. Now, next week will be episode 70. Uh, I guess we'll kind of loosely call it History of Werewolves Part 5, but it's really kind of our Summer of the Wolf wrap-up. Um, even though we have another, we have one more werewolf movie to watch here this summer, the next week, which will be another Wolf Cop from 2017, which I'm really looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we figured we'd take this opportunity next week to kind of wrap up uh, everything we've been talking about with our Spook Show Spotlight series, the handful of movies we've watched, and we're going to be bringing in a special guest. It's Travis Roy from the Cinema 9 podcast. He's going to be joining us now. Uh, Donnie, he's a friend of yours. He is a professor or once was a professor or something like that, right? Yeah, he was a uh, professor at uh, Temple University, but uh, I know him from a long time ago. Uh, we're going, you know, probably 20 years. We went to uh, film school together. And I'm sure we'll get into, you know, y'all's time together and some interesting stories and stuff whenever we have him on next week. But uh, really one of the main reasons we wanted to bring him on other than just the fact that he's a friend of the show. And uh, Donnie, you actually were on an episode of the cinema nine podcast just a couple weeks ago. Right. Yeah. Um, But he actually had a podcast basically on that same uh, theme, right? Like one of his first podcasts he did. Yeah. It was uh, titled uh, the history of werewolves and other things. Uh, was the name of the name of the show, and the very first uh, episode was the history of werewolves, uh, where you you know just dived in to the um, well exactly what it is the yeah. history of werewolves. <laughs> so, so we'll 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 talk to him about that and get his yeah. input, and I'm sure there's some things that he could point out that that uh, we didn't point out even in our four part history of werewolves spook show spotlight series. Yep. Um, so I'm sure there's some stuff he can bring to the table on that end of it, and but it'll be cool to get another person's perspective just on the history of things and some of his favorite werewolf movies and all that. So uh, come back next week for that. That'll be next Monday, um, August 23rd, 6 p.m. East. That'll come out. But then the next week, episode 71, which comes out August 30th, and that will basically be the end of the Summer of the Wolf series 
we're going to be talking about another wolf cop from 2017, so I'll go ahead and read the synopsis. Alcoholic werewolf cop Lugaru springs into action when an eccentric businessman with evil intentions seduces Woodhaven's residents with a new brewery and hockey team in this outrageous horror comedy sequel. So definitely looking forward to that. I mean, I think we all enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the hell out of Wolf Cop, so um, we'll see if this one lives up to that or not uh, on our next movie review episode. And that'll be episode 71 on August 30th, you know, that Monday at 6 p.m. East. That's when that one will come out. So I guess that's all we can say about the howling and just get ready for another Wolf Cop and make sure you come back next week for somewhat of our uh, Summer of the Wolf wrap-up show with uh, special guest Travis Roy from the Cinema 9 podcast. So for Will and for Donnie and the Professor Smoke, I'm Josh. We are the All-American Spook Show Horror Podcast, and we will see you next week. Please replace the speaker on its rack when you're ready to leave. Failure to do so will damage both the speaker and your car. We'll be grateful, and so will the patrons who follow you.